The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast and radio show. Have you ever dreamed of being an environmental consultant or wondered what they do? This episode features Larissa Rose, who joined me over the phone from Australia. She's the Director and Senior Environmental Consultant at Glowing Green Australia. Larissa, I would like to learn a little bit about you and your career. And Glowing Green, is this a a new thing that you started or has this been going on for a while? Tell me about Glowing Green. Yeah, absolutely, Laura. So Glowing Green Australia was formed and started in 2010. And I started that uh, just when I started my master's degree. And Glowing Green Australia is an environmental consultancy business. So we're a company that provide um, services around um, environmental assessment and environmental and sustainability education. Awesome. So we've, um, yeah, so we've been building since 2010 and now I have up to four employees and I have a rotational system of anywhere from two to three interns per semester now. Oh, good. Yeah, I read that you that you have some interns, and that's that's really nice. So, how are you sort of helping the interns and fostering them kind of to be the next environmental leaders? Absolutely. So that is a really big steadfast methodology that uh, we have here at Glowing Green Australia, and a lot of that obviously comes from my aspirations of ensuring that we have a duty of care to build the leaders of the future. So nice. whether that's in environmental waste or whether you're doing that in, you know, building the leaders of the future in marketing or whatever your company is, company, company is in your um, sector you work in. So we have felt that it's really important to have a double effect on that. One part is obviously to nurture and grow graduates who are transitioning from their degrees into the real world and reality to ensure that they are up to date and up to speed on what the industry and the current market are needing and wanting when they leave university. Going from coursework to the reality, as you know, in real world is sometimes very different. So we want to ensure that we can manage that and mitigate any gaps where there could be with that um, as a company. Um, So that's why we take on those interns to support that. But the other sort of ethical thing that we have that runs alongside that is ensuring that we really truly show what leadership is in the workplace. And that is our other duty of care that we have. So what that means is, Laura, is we want to make sure that we are mentoring and building people to be equipped to have a different skill set than just doing coursework. So we actually like to show and replicate through model behavior the difference between having a leader and a boss. And then also within that, we sit down and do a lot of workshop time sitting with them, actually getting quite accountable and true to what their goals are, what they're wanting to do and achieve. And that pretty much just means sitting down and mapping out and mapping, where are you going? Do you know the top five companies you want to work for? Why do you want to work for them? Do you believe and know their ethics enough? Or are you just wanting to work with them because you think they're the best? But really, if you break down to it, are they the kind of company and business that aligns to your own personal ethics? Which I guess at the end of the day is Sustainability 101, which is your own well-being and mindset, who you work for as well as, you know, the industry and sector that you work for as well. Mm -hmm. You can't save the world if you are not being able to save yourself or keep yourself healthy, right? So it's good to take care of yourself and then you can go out and work on these bigger problems, I find. So that's really great that you're doing that. And it's it's nice. I think it's a little different for women too. We have different ways of of being leaders sometimes. And it's it's nice that you're doing that and, and fostering that next generation. You started this company when you were doing your master's. So you were doing both at the same time? I Yeah, I well, did. I had this grand idea when I was in my master's because I'd done or I would had already done my environmental work and studies before and I went back to do my master's just before I had my third child and I had this oh profound, amazing amazing green light bulb moment where I was <laughs> well you know what I really want to take a sense of ownership and change in direction and I 
I kind of don't like dropping the word entrepreneurship because I feel like it's so washed over and used so much. But I just wanted to take an ownership to go, well, I would really like to determine and change my trajectory and my outcomes and me be able to be really specific and accountable on what change I actually want. So to do that, I need to command and dictate how I really want that transition to happen and occur. So I was sitting in an economics class and I was like, I'm going to start a company called Glowing Green Australia. We're going to be an environmental consultancy company that's going to specialise in environmental you know, reporting and assessment and auditing and waste management and all of that regulatory approval process. But also alongside that, we're going to ensure that we facilitating education um, and really getting grassroots approach action happening on the ground as well. So I, yeah, started that in 2010. I pretty much gained a contract quite quickly uh, and then it just progressed from there, working in my spare office in my home like a lot of us do to keep it real. And then before I knew it, I had some really great opportunities to start to transition to finding an office space and, you know, went through the feelings of walking through the gravel road sometimes as you do when you're building a business, but was really mindful to get out there on the ground and get quite clear and concise about what our actionables were and what services we could provide as a business. And then from there, that's given us that capacity now to have a really great office and a really great team and we've built ourselves slowly and sustainably. So I guess that's the key word as well. What was the first type of project that you landed it was around my first contract, which was around regulatory report writing as per the Australian um, federal regulations for the environment. It was around land clearing, which when you're an environmental consultant, it's really challenging because you dance with the devil a lot with your contract work. So it's so hard sometimes, Laura, because your ethics get really challenged. And this land clearing was around for development work out in more regional Queensland, which is the state of Australia in the top the top right-hand corner. And I guess for me, it was that first time of realising if you're an environmental consultant, you either go work with some of the biggest contributors to climate change, which is in our mining and heavy construction side of yeah. things that have the biggest environmental portfolios, which they really do. Like if you want to go work for some of those big mining company names, they have the biggest environmental portfolios, which are quite ludicrous as you as a graduate to go and do a graduate program with them. But then you're kind of advocating and working for some of the biggest carbon releases in, in the world. So yeah. it's, it is that dancing with the devil, the ethics of being an environmental consultant, but you believe in what you're doing because you're trying to find the best pathway to reduce, mitigate or adapt those changes or changes that occurred or changes that will keep occurring. So my first contract was around land clearing, which was that first feeling, that sense of how do you find a, a safe space to feel comfortable with taking on work, which is obviously causing, you know, change on a land basis, but you are trying to ensure that it's being done per the code and the regulations. Um, and then you're adding your extra essence inside that to go, well, no, we need to find a different pathway for this development to occur because we want to, you know, reduce the amount of trees or the regional ecosystem that could get damaged. So... That was the first contract, which had a double effect of me realizing the whole ethical part too. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think people in the zero waste world get really angry at some of the big companies because they're having such a bad detrimental impact. But sometimes it's mm. those companies who, with just a little change, will have a ripple effect that will make such a positive impact. Good. You are so right. Yeah. For sure. Some of those smaller companies that have to work like contractors and companies that say you're contracted to a gas company that might want to clear land to put coal seam gas in, you as a smaller independent consultant that have very strong ethical issues around environmental management mm -hmm. compared to maybe as much as a larger multinational company, you know that you can make a very progressive shift and change to go, no, we need to find another pathway because there are too many certain specific trees that will get damaged on that and you go outside the parameters of what those specifications are and rules are by a national policy to go, well, this is business as usual on how the policy will go, but us as an independent consultancy firm, because we have our own duty of care and our reputation as a company, we are going to go beyond that because we have a set of standards within ourselves to make sure that you as a company, um, so say it was that gas company, to go... No, we're going to take it a bit further 
And we're going to let you know that you can actually advocate later on that you as a company went beyond the usual specifications the law would have said to say, no, we decided to really change this development. We spent an extra 10 grand on changing the pathway of that land clearing because we were able to reduce this much damage or this much. And that's the pressure point a smaller company and a consultancy firm can put on those larger companies mm-hmm. to change, whereas if they were internally doing it, they may not have that same ethical issue. Mm-hmm. I'm into mm. communication, so it, even if you just had this little this little blog about how sustainable you were, if you were the gas company and everything's really ga- mm. great, maybe people wouldn't pay that much attention to it. Maybe they would, but it's nice to have these things in your back pocket also for when something goes wrong. And I'm just thinking about my work in public affairs when I was in the military, that if somebody says, oh my gosh, look at you, gas company, you just did this bad thing. It's like, well, we're sorry we made this mistake. We're trying and like, mm. look at all these really nice things that we're doing and we're, you know, environment is really important to us and all this stuff. So I think it's nice to have that record as well, right? Just for for as you go forward? Yeah. I noticed that a lot of forums and community groups, when they get together and discuss, you know, development stuff that's going on or something that's happening in the area or the region, that there does tend to be that bandwagon that people get on when it's a big company or a construction development that might be happening in the area that everyone just seems to default to you're like doing this, this, and this, and this. And the example of what you said with the gas is very true, that a lot of these companies are being very progressive and taking a big sense of ownership. It's just hard for them to talk through the white noise of going, well, actually, yeah, we know we're doing this clearing. However, this is what we have been doing, but you've never allowed us that chance. You know, you can do as much publications and branding and marketing about what they are doing but it's just going to hit a wall if no one wants to listen to it. And the only Mm -hmm. time they listen sometimes is when the placards are out and the pickets are out. So it's so true. And that mentality that happens a little bit sometimes in community, which was the most recent one, I had to stand up at a community forum and go, look, well, hey, there's another narrative that sits alongside this, is that a lot of these companies and businesses are taking progressive ownership around how they are going to look at finding, sourcing other types of concrete that might be greener. Or the supply chain now, they're trying to mitigate the consumption of products. They're trying to find a company that doesn't package the, you know, the windows or the, you know, the different products that got to come to a construction. They're trying to look at how to mitigate that waste stream. So they are taking progressive action, even though you're just seeing that it's a 10-story building that's going on and everyone's bagging it. You there are other, there is other progressive work that these businesses are doing, and um, don't be quick to just jump and go to default reactiveness about stuff. So I feel for both sides, it's, it's very hard sometimes, and it is a lot as you would have known from your experience. Mm-hmm. Getting that communications out is is a tough gig on a public relations issue. Yeah, I brought him a person who invests in a lot of mining on the show and does really well at it, and he said, you know, if people are upset about the mining, you just have to decrease the demand like there's such a demand for the newest iphone the newest technology all these new 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 things and Mm -hmm. that's what's sort of driving it so that's why on on our show we try and talk about decreasing demand but not losing jobs because if (laughs) if we don't have an economy Mm -hmm. then i i feel at least in canada anyway that people will start taking our natural resources more so to survive because it's so cold here. Like we need oil and gas where we are at the moment. And so we're trying to find other ways of, of doing things here in Canada. But right now it's it's tough. And, you know, that whole forest is there. And I'm always worried about our forest because I'm, I'm a forest person. I love it. And I'm just like, ooh, let's make sure we keep our resources where they are and, and grow grow forward, you know, the best that we can and, and get away from fossil fuels without taking something worse I guess I'm trying to say but but mm. let's let's go back to some of the other things that you do in your company so I was reading something about cafes so you have done a collaboration with some cafes in your area yes you know again with that community it's all about at a grassroots level we can start to shift and make that change mm-hmm. and a part of our um, business work that we do is around auditing and assessment and that's around water waste and energy So we have done a lot of work with that with um, just general companies, but also a lot with schools as well. There's been a lot of progressive work with schools, but with the cafes, they've begun to, I guess, that 
that shift in the market from the consumers is a lot around now that waste stream narrative and we've started to begin to have conversations with some of the local cafes in our area and have begun the process of starting to do the auditing and waste management assessment. So what that means is we're going in now and looking at the, the volumes of waste and doing all of that, you know, auditing and assessment on actual stats and data of what it's got and then looking at how we can start to mitigate and create minimising consumption pathways. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is around letting them understand the sense of ownership that they have with um, the different companies and businesses out there that are now providing cafes with lower impact or waste and packaged products, mm-hmm. whether that's more bulk ways or uh, looking at how they've got a reusable container system that they can use. So, yeah, that's been going really well. The biggest thing is um, because there's always obviously a financial element that's attached to those services is really building a culture with those owners to have that, empowering them with that sense of ownership that you're investing in this is, comes back to you with your branding and PR and public relations side, is Mm. that this is a very important narrative. We'll do the work and then this is a very good conversation that you can let your community know now. And to help differentiate yourself um, from other cafes in the area or the region about your sense of duty of care, your, Mm. I don't call it, corporate social responsibility, I call it community social responsibility for those businesses. And I like to change that CSR terminology because instilling in them and having those conversations with those cafe owners is a big part of that first work that we do. And some of them take a little bit of time. Some of them already have that sense of ownership. And it's really great. So we're starting to see that uptake. And then you can see that that sense of positivity that comes out of the cafe owners now to go, well, yeah, like we've changed some better waste management practices. We're instilling that in our staff, which is in turn showing leadership. Oh, good, back yes. To modeling leadership, yeah. yeah. And then just simple systems and processes that can be done. Some cafes want to take it to a higher level. Some are like, okay, well, can we just get three different streams of separating waste? And then we go, look, let's just do that first. Let's yeah. get you comfortable with that. And then we can transition across the greater you know, oh, waste stream management. Have you ever introduced yes. the, the the possibility for the staff to just say for here or to go? And the reason I ask is because when I go to a coffee store here in Canada, I see everybody sitting down and talking and they're all drinking out of the garbage cups. And I think, you know, if the barista just said for here or to go, you could probably over a giant chain like Starbucks or something, save millions of cups from going to the trash a year, Uh, right? Yeah, you are so right. And that is around behavioral management. Yeah. And we noticed a lot you're so true on that Laura because with the with the schools implementing those programs we've had to work a lot on changing the teaching and the culture and the thought processes that people have about transitioning to lower you know zero waste solutions Mm -hmm. and then that is so true when customers come in and order a coffee it happens here in Australia you see and I'm like look at these people sitting down have got like takeaway cups like, what's going on there? Yeah. And it is all around if you train your staff to go, letting the cult, letting letting these people come come into your cafe to go, your staff are the point of sale. That point of sale is where you can determine the culture on the accountability that your your consumers have. So are they going to, you need to ask those questions, which is all around just lovely engagement anyway. Well, what's your choice today? Like, are you planning to sit down because we've got, We've got a new overarching change that we're doing now. So we'd love all of our customers, if they're going to sit down, that they actually drink out of one of our amazing mugs and cups that we have that we can reuse and rewash because we're planning to reduce our, you know, all of our cups, takeaway cup consumption. And then just kind of having a little bit of a narrative around that. So we have begun, you know, that conversation a little bit. Sometimes it's easy done for some cafes. Some cafes are okay, yeah, well, we need to probably spend time then sitting and working with our staff about changing that default behaviour and not by not even asking. But, yeah, let's start a revolution on that <laughs> behavioural <laughs> change at the point of sale. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well said. And, and it's kind of a, a free change, and then it would save them money 
over time. Well, I mean, this is where it's so important where you come in, I'm sure, is doing the cost analysis of, okay, this is how much, you know, a thousand garbage cups cost plus the cost of getting rid of it with a waste management system, you know, with the paying for the trucks to take it away or whatever, and versus buying a whole new fleet of cups where you can drink in the cafe. So is that sort of something you would do is like figure out all those costs for businesses? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So that is where the amazing part on data, that Mm -hmm. auditing, that data is the most powerful narrative to have with business owners or with schools when we work with schools and we showcase how much paper is getting used at the school Mm -hmm. every week. And then you you grab all of that and you turn that into what that is comparative to CO2 emissions, what that means economically, so environmentally, economically. Mm-hmm. And when you say, well, this is, did you know this is how much you spend per year on cups? And just by changing um, five people every day in your cafe to transition to that. So we give all of that stats in data and that's why it's so valuable to do that auditing assessment side because that is the most powerful narrative we all know when it starts hitting the hip pocket that's Mm -hmm. the first thing um and that's to be honest you know people go yeah we want to do it because environmentally but the biggest driver is the economic one we all know that you said before it changes a a country like canada understands its dependency on energy it's a very energy heavy intensive country because it needs it to keep the country and the humans on it warm and that's the same with businesses they look at it and go whoa okay so you're meaning if we don't have to buy that many cups per year now and I'm reducing that much per cubic meter of bin use every year which equates to this much reduction in waste services fees that I don't have to pay when you start shaping up that narrative and do that sort of excel spreadsheet data information Mm-hmm. you actually start to game change people's thoughts about it. If you came to Laura Nash's cafe, let's say you came to me and said, yeah. hey, and, and we're going to pitch and say, hey, we can we can consult for you and, and turn you green and save you a bit of money. It would be awesome. Would you have data from another similar cafe? Because I've always wondered, like, because I've thought of about asking a, a company in my hometown if they would consider switching you know, cones, ice cream cones, instead of putting them all in those cups. But it's like, how do I get their data first without mm. approaching them first? So like, do you just use comparative data from other similar companies or? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're yeah. starting new ones, like we just sometimes just do general data assessment work where we'll go, okay, well, we're pitching to a new company with a different waste stream that we may not have a comparative from another business, like yeah. we'll, we'll use that blueprint from another business and keep it quite general so they don't know who the company is. But we would just kind of do an equivalent. So let's mm-hmm. do some baseline assumption assessment data. Let's say they had this many people that use those many cups or just ask them for some general idea on, oh, like how many people out of a ratio in a day is it like, say you get, you have, I don't know, 200 sales, how many people take the cup? Just get that general assumption data and go from there, um, and then you you know work that out per day, per week, per year, and just mm-hmm. give that general data, and then you can go from there, and then you can work out well the the baseline data you have. We know how much footprint probably is in those little paper cups that totally cannot be recycled very well because of their lining and everything in them, and then what that means it's per volume equivalent to going to landfill so we can Mm -hmm. grab carbon and stats and data that general data that's available so you can kind of shape it up and that's how you would do the pitch so i would go to laura nash's cafe or ice cream shop welcome and then um (laughs) yep hi how are you laura (laughs) and i thought it'd be really valuable that we came to you today and gave you a really good understanding on um what it means from the you know carbon footprint from your cafe and the opportunity that you have as a business owner into the community and how you could contribute to reducing the amount of landfill. And that's a really great discussion piece that you could, you know, have um, come across to your consumers. But also if there was that situation where you knew that you still needed that option, let's look at finding some alternative products that provide you with that. So maybe it might Mm -hmm. be some sort of like type of cone that is in the shape of a little cup. Now I know a coffee company that make a like a waffle type little in your hand coffee cup 
that they use as a dessert option for people that like to have their coffee and then they've got like this little cute cup thing. But that's another discussion anyway. But there's, you know, there could be an opportunity for you, Laura, as a coffee shop ice cream owner to look at, <laughs> well, hey, I understand you can't do, you can't completely remove the cups, but let's look at a transition pathway on how we might be able to change that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. We just give you some general data and then when you're ready, you'd be like, okay, well, could we just look at doing a scope of work, Larissa? So let's just look at what it would mean for you to come in and do a good overarching assessment, give us some stats and data, um, some suggestions and recommendations on a pathway, how we could reduce this much carbon, how we could have a greater narrative to our community and our consumers and our, um, our customers. And then from there, you know, say this is the cost, this is the price, this is what we can provide for you. So that's how we do it. And then we need to go into those numbers and get your books and your data to really, you know, get quite specific too. Yeah, because wouldn't that be amazing if we had more consultants like you that were in different countries, right? Like, I don't think you would be afraid of someone competing against you who's in, you know, California or something. That's like really far away. And I think North America really needs this because there are businesses all around me, Larissa, that are just just doing crazy things and and, and could change so much. And And sometimes it's just like we said, like just for here to go. Like that, that is a very, very simple yeah. uh, thing. And then, and then I'm sure it gets very complex up from there when you're talking about fossil fuels and, and stuff like that. And I know that you know a lot about biofuel and stuff. And so I don't want to get into it too, too much, but I just wonder a little bit about the biofuel work that you're doing. And I'll, I'll ask you why it's better than fossil fuels. Yeah, absolutely. So just to help with the audience, my role in hat has been in my master's degree. I studied and researched a lot around the economic viability of Australia comparative to other countries and, and nations around the world have been doing and using biofuels and the renewable fuels of the future, which are even more lower carbon intensive. So just to keep it as layman's as we can um, and not sound too sciencey, so my work was around studying and researching that um, and Biofuels, as we all know, I'll keep that as a general word and not get too caught up, are lower carbon fuels comparative to the use of liquid fossil fuels. So I understand um, in the Northern Hemisphere we use the word gasoline a lot. So we have gasoline and diesel, um, which are called petrol and diesel in Australia. So they're a carbon-intensive fuel. They are what we call a liquid fossil fuel, and they provide the opportunity for us to um, do the big, one of the biggest carbon-intensive industries in the world, which is transportation. Mm-hmm. So that will be for shipping, aviation, heavy transport. Um, so that's for our, our heavy trucks. And then obviously for passenger car fleets. So we need liquid fossil fuels to move around the world on those. Um, those fuels are used obviously also for the economic viability of a country and their industries and sectors like construction, mining, agriculture, and which is sometimes the backbone of moving um, goods and products and services um, and, you know, resources getting mined and things like that, moving around a country. So lower carbon fuels are fuels that are obviously less CO2 um, carbon intensive compared to oil, like liquid fossil fuel. So those fuels are pulled from oil. Oil is extracted out of the earth and then it's cleaned up and refined to produce the fuels that you see at the service station at the Bowser which is usually, you know, gasoline, um, your diesel, and then Mm -hmm. for shipping, um, the dirtiest fuel in the world. Uh, Shipping and cargo freight uses heavy intensive sulfur, very, the the gunk, we like to call it the muck, the dregs. Is that the, is that the bunker fuel for giant ships? Yeah, yeah, I knew that that was very dirty. Yeah. Oh, horrific, um, horrific amount of sulfur. And then the cleaner refined fuels like jet fuel that are used as well. So those two industries are the biggest carbon mitigating industries now. They on a global regulatory space um, are taking a very big accountability on the carbon intensity of those fuels. So just to pull it back down, um, my work has been to advocate and push and promote for Australia to transition lower carbon fuel alternatives. 
So we have had not a very big overarching federal accountability in Australia to transition to alternative options mm-hmm. for liquid fuel. So we have alternatives with wind and solar, which is renewable energy. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the energy matrix of a country, like comparative to Canada, you have a dependency for electricity and how do you decarbonize the electricity sector. Uh, but you also need to understand the other side of the energy matrix pie chart is the dependency on liquid fossil fuel, yeah. which is obviously moves the backbone of a country. Mm-hmm. So it's very quick. People think about renewable energy and they forget about liquid fossil fuels and how dependent countries are on those fuels. Um, Australia is heavily dependent on liquid fossil fuels. We now import 96% of our liquid fossil fuels from overseas. We do not refine and clean those fuels up in our own country now. So so you basically need that dirty bunker fuel just to get the fuel over to you, right? <laughs> you absolutely nailed it. And just to give some stats and data, in Australia, the Australian economy consumes um, about 24 billion litres of diesel annually in this country. I don't have stats for Canada, and I should have been more prepared and had something which would have been a good comparative to Canada. So we understand in that energy matrix, we have to find alternatives to support coal-fired electricity, and then we have to find, which is wind and solar, and then we have to find alternatives for using fossil fuels, liquid fuels. So there has not been a lot of progressive work um, on a federal issue to help mitigate the use of those fuels. So that's where myself and my hat after my research, I worked with industry and co-founded an industry association called the Queensland Renewable Fuels Association, which was to create an industry body that will support and advocate the uptake and use of lower carbon renewable fuels. So is that like... um like the palm oil uses biofuel? No. Oh. So in Australia, we have been producing biofuels, which is called ethanol and biodiesel, which might be quite familiar for your audience. Mm-hmm. They are generally the 101 biofuels that are produced around the world. Those fuels are made from something called a feedstock, which is very different all around the world. And in the United States, ethanol is predominantly produced from corn starch, Mm -hmm. so a non-food corn. The starch from that is extracted out to produce ethanol. Mm -hmm. And biodiesel is generally made from tallow, so animal fats from the rendering process and different types of vegetable oils to produce biodiesel. Mm-hmm. So they are sort of generally those feedstocks that have been used. In Brazil, ethanol has been made from sugarcane. Um, we make ethanol from sugarcane as well in Australia. Oh, and cool. we also make ethanol from something called sorghum, which is a little red grain. Sometimes you see it in bird seed. Mm-hmm. Um, sorghum, they ferment sorghum and then they make ethanol out of that. So they're feedstocks that are available. And then also we make biodiesel from tallow and vegetable seed oil crops as well. So that's how we use it. There is no use of any product, any biofuels in Australia from palm oil. Good, good, because that's what I worry about. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we know that there's Absolutely. a lot of problems with, with palm oil. So that's good. The market is demanding now that the certification and international sustainability and carbon certificate accreditation is given for biofuels to reduce and remove the narrative around the food versus fuel, which is a very old um, myth, which completely needs to be rebunked. It has to be um, debunked. Um, And is around the sustainability. So that's called a life cycle analysis. So that is done in a lot of different supply chains for products is where that is how you get the comparative figure to say that this type of renewable diesel or biojet fuel is 75% less CO2 comparative to normal biojet, to normal jet fuel. When it burns, like when it comes out your tailpipe, or is that the whole process of everything? That's the process from, from, from farm. To, t- to fuel tank. Right, versus extracting oil from 
the ocean or deep underground mm. or whatever you're you're doing. And then does it burn cleaner as well, like out the tailpipe? Is it cleaner to burn the biofuel? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Oxygenated, yeah, oxygenated cleaner fuels. So they reduce their cleaner burning, they're more efficient, mm-hmm. um, and they're oxygenated fuels. And um, some of those replicate the same hydrocarbon um, chain as what a fossil fuel hydrocarbon chain is. From also within that, when we look at the air quality standards, this is a big progressive work that the California Air Quality Standards Board has done, is that when you burn fossil fuels, yes, you're burning carbon and the carbon intensity that's gone in to extract fossil fuels. Now, some people talk about, oh, well, you know, maybe the biofuels are just the same carbon intensity as what it is for that. No, they're not, because let's look at how much fuel is pulled out of the Arabian country and Korea and Russia are some of the biggest oil-producing countries as well. And that oil is shipped to Singapore to get cleaned and refined. Then that's picked up from Singapore and spread out to different countries because Singapore is one of the biggest refining nations in the world now for oil, crude oil. And then that's transported to, say, Australia. And then that oil then has gone to the port. And then that fuel is then put into more transportation to get to it. Meanwhile, 150 kilometres away or 300 kilometres away, there's a local refinery that's producing ethanol and helping support growers and farmers to do crop rotational feedstocks, not taking away any food whatsoever because they have fallow land. And a lot of growers and farmers will know you need to let your land breathe. You need to let it have space. You need to grow a, grow a fallow crop to put more nitrogen and to rejuvenate the soil. So there's an opportunity now for growers to be able to grow a feedstock that can feed into making locally grown fuel that is only going 500 kilometres or 300 kilometres to the port to get cleaned up and refined and blended into an ethanol fuel blend comparative to oil that was pulled out of Korea or Russia and then had to get all the way back to exactly where that ethanol fuel is going to sit next to it, the Bowser. So we we have the same problem right now, which is very interesting. So we have this Alberta oil, and we're getting, I don't Mm -hmm. know if it's like 40% or something of our oil is being shipped in from the very similar countries that Australia is getting the oil from. And so Canadians are starting to wake up and say, why are we importing so much oil from other countries when we could just be using our own, and then that saves on that dirty bunker fuel that's coming from those ships, right? And we have very, very strict regulations with our oil industry. I think it's the strictest in the world, but I'm not sure. I've heard that it is, but I haven't, like, fact-checked that. Um, So it's interesting that we're having similar issues, but on the other side of the planet. Mm, Absolutely. And that's a lot around the fuel quality standards. And I know Canada and the Advanced Biofuels Association in Canada and the work being led by some of the pivotal biofuel lawyers in the United States are, are pushing to help advocate and promote for Canada to create a transition policy in place, um, whether that's from a state-by-state state state jurisdiction sort of level or as a whole nation, mm-hmm. um, on transitioning across and really looking at how do we decarbonise our dependency on liquid fossil fuels in this country and advocate and push for agricultural waste streams and different types of multiple feedstocks that can be now used because there are so many amazing technologies out there that can enable those waste streams to be converted into alternative fuels. Mm-hmm. And that's where that opportunity sits with regulations that have been done as we've seen in California, California is the most leading state in the world with its very progressive incentivizing markets for the push for companies to be able to use and to transition across to lower carbon fuels like a renewable diesel, a biojet fuel, which in turn helps lower the carbon footprint, reduces the dependency on liquid fossil fuels that that state will be dependent on, but also helps with the air quality standards because when you burn fuel at the tailpipe, it's not just that whole discussion I had before about the fuel coming from out of the oil and the ground and and the carbon intensity that it has there, but also the 
noxious emissions that come that affect the particulate matter that comes out of the tailpipe, which in turn affects human health and, and in turn is a social issue. Yeah, exactly. This is interesting. And you know, it's funny because I remember when I was younger, it came out that at the gas station, there were like stickers of corn. <laughs> and I, I think they had a face like it was like this happy corn. It was like ethanol, you know, <laughs> we're, we're adding a certain percent of, of corn. So I, I've always known that it's been around a little bit. Having that baseline fuel, petrol, like in, in oh no, I'm talking about the United States now, but in the United States, all petrol, petroleum, gasoline has 10% ethanol in its stock standard to displace mm-hmm. 10% of the country's dependency on importing that fuel or mm-hmm. using that fuel. So that's what your happy smiley face will be. <laughs> will be the ethanol that has displaced 10% um, fossil fuel, which is cleaner burning, more efficient and better for your vehicle, reduces the carbon buildup inside an engine. And all of the Euro 5 and Euro 6 spec specification vehicles, engine technology vehicles that are coming in now as a part of the market are demanding cleaner burning fuels mm-hmm. and it'll work more efficiently and effective on those cleaner oxygenated fuels. So that that choice that a consumer has when they stand there at that Bowser is a very powerful choice because you are making a choice to go, I'm going to not advocate and push for 100% fuels. I'm going to do a 90% blend or a 50% blend. But I'm also going to understand that, that what that means to a grower and a farmer in the region, what that means for different technologies to now take everyday household rubbish and convert that over to making a fuel, which was a waste stream that needed to be managed somehow. Um, so that's, that's the choice that you as a consumer have. And then in turn, making sure that a particulate matter called PM 2.5, which is the most carcinogenic an impacting particle which goes down into your bloodstream when you breathe it in, that you are going to reduce that from being in the air that we breathe. And is that from fossil fuels burning out the tailpipe? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, some ethanol blends, um, it all varies from the feedstock they're made from, but they can reduce that particle anywhere from 30% out of 10% blend. So if there's 10% ethanol in that gasoline, you're looking at anywhere as a reduction of 30% of that particulate matter being reduced out of that fuel mm-hmm. when it's burnt to the tailpipe. I worry about children growing up in cities if they're they're going to be okay, you know, with all of all of this pollution. And it's definitely been a concern for a while. And sometimes I think the younger generation is going to lead us in the right way and fix all of our problems. And then I will go to like a concert where it's all people way younger than me. And I'll see like the mess that they, they leave afterwards. I'm sure you've seen those pictures of, of a concert and it's like a field of trash after it, you know. But, but there is a lot of hope in our younger generation and you have a new program. It's called Glowing Green Crusaders. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, so exciting. And as we know, we have this wave of, amazing environmental stewardship that is coming through um, and accountability that our new generation know they've got to deal with our, the aftermath of the industrial revolution. I think we're up to industrial revolution number four now and the baby boomers era um, has steadfastly put a lot of pressure now on our younger generation. So our program, Glowing Green Crusaders, just started as an environmental education program that we ran in schools over the last um seven years Mm -hmm. and that was just really around promoting and giving a lot of awareness in schools to younger students between the ages of you know five to twelve around their ownership and then we just recently converted that program to a social media platform Mm -hmm. it's an environmental leadership campaign and it's to showcase and advocating um, outstanding environmental stewardship with um, children between the ages of 5 and 12 in our communities. And we really wanted to, as a a company, really recognise some outstanding um, efforts and really meaningful change that we've seen a lot of these kids in these programs that we've been teaching in schools doing. And we're like, 
what is anyone doing to promote them? So we um, just launched that about a week ago and kids can nominate and their parents can nominate them and they will be showcased on our Instagram and our Facebook and our website to highlight the work that they've done. And some of these students got amazing Instagram pages on what they've been doing, whether it's one, you know, 10-year-old on the western side of Australia that really pushed and lobbied for the local politician to put recycling bins in the local park. You know, like we want to promote and advocate that. Mm -hmm. Or it might be the, you know, eight-year-old who is doing great work every Sunday walking with his parents cleaning up rubbish. And we want to, yeah, really nurture that and instill that and showcase that. And then that works alongside our environmental cleanup days that we do. We do free um, education and childcare just to, you know, talk with kids about that. And we've had a lot of cleanup days with four, five-year-olds coming to help do a beach cleanup day for a day and a half, you know, for an hour and a half, I should say. Mm-hmm. And then we put all the rubbish out on a big tarpaulin and then we separate it and we talk about that and we talk about what do we do and how do we manage that. And that is good because it instills growth and confidence with this younger generation, but it puts a pressure point on accountability of the parents who are attending to see the change. And this is where we go back to that behavioural change because some of the parents didn't realise that there's an opportunity now to take all of the soft plastics scrunch plastics, the ones that can scrunch in your hand, take them back to the supermarket and put them in that certain bin. Mm. And that's where the education works on two different levels. How so do you... that's what a lot around that, that's what a lot of that was about, that Glowing Green Crusaders program, and we wanted to advocate that on a social media platform. Yeah, that's so nice for kids, you know, to, to recognize them, because sometimes these things go unrecognized, and you don't want people to say, well, why am I doing this, you know, all the time? So this is just wonderful. And how do you how do you get funding for that? Is it uh, is there money from the school board to bring in these education programs? Yes, correct. There is um, some schools we do full sustainability environmental plans. So we go in as independent consultants mm-hmm. and we run a sustainability plan and program from the sustainability committee through to all that data and assessment and analysis and auditing work that I mentioned to you through to driving a sustainability envision plan to putting in initiatives in the schools, to um, supporting their marketing and narratives on how they communicate that to the community, but also what they mean on a sustainability development goal, so we keep them unaccountable. So we have programs that are full consultancy packages and contracts that we do with schools. Then we have schools that might do a smaller, lower key level where we just go in and promote every school term or semester, you know, a program that works alongside their environmental you know, accountability that they want to do, that works along the curriculum. Uh, and then we invite, we fund ourselves to do those beach cleanup days for free. And then we invite um, child cares or kindergarten services to come and be involved and, and do a lot of community partnerships. So we do that kind of collaboration community work, which is great because, as you know, from PR perspective, it is beneficial and we can have that narrative and work together and be seen as a collective um, in the community doing that work. So mm-hmm. some work contracted, some is we feel like that duty of care that we have as a, a business to have our community, um, social responsibility, not corporate. We change it to community to support and enable. And we also pressure point the local councillors, your local politicians in the region, whether that's just at a local community level or a federal level, mm-hmm. we pressure point them to be involved and to get grassroots on the level at seeing it for how it is. So we showed one of our local councillors, um, which is like a senator for you, to go, can you see how much like cigarettes are going on here? Like, look at how many we've just collected in an hour. Oh my gosh, you know, like yeah. 1,500 cigarette butts. You need to start implementing programs in place. Yeah. So, you know, sort of putting them in that face value level. So that us as a, a separate company in a business, we've got that duty of care to keep them accountable and on their toes to go, you know, 45% of this rubbish we collected today could be put in a recycling bin and a recycling management plan for public recycling needs to be put in place. You don't have anything. It's about time that you do. Mm-hmm. So that helps us, like, do a really great soft lobbying level as well. Yeah. It's very different, you know, talking to children if they're five years old or 12 years old. So that would be, I think that would be a big challenge 
to cater the programs or, or, or maybe not, mm-hmm. maybe they, they're responsive to the same one, but I've done a, f- a few different presentations and yeah, the age difference makes it interesting. My son saw a recycling presentation when he was seven and the person who did it is my friend. And she was over at my house one day and was like, do you remember me? And my son said, nope. <laughs> and she said, well, I gave that recycling presentation. You don't remember? And he's like, no. And then he said, well, is it the one with the transformer picture? And my friend looked at me and said, on one slide out of about 20 or something, there was this one tiny photo of a transformer. And that's all my my son took away from from the presentation Mm. because he was so young. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like you have such a difficult job to try and and get this message out. Yes, for sure. We've got World Environment Day and we'll be running a program in one school, which will be for six and seven year olds. And we have to we have to specifically curtail it to be around that. How do you anchor them to have that retain that data and information? Mm hmm whether that would be like a hands-on thing for them to be able to physically be involved and remember that as well. Yeah. I always thought it would be cool if you could just bring in like 40 bags stuffed with some sort of air. So you could be like, do you know how how many trash bags a family produces, you know, and then just bring in one garbage and then bring in another garbage bag and another garbage bag and have them like pile up into this massive mountain. I think the kids would be like, oh my gosh, what's going on, you know? But how would you ever transport that or like you'd have to like use a reusable balloon or something to blow them up I don't know because if if I was a kid I think I would have remembered I always remembered things when people were moving around and doing things with lots of visuals and attention grabbing things I'm always trying to think of of ways to make those messages stick it's a challenge but you know what and a good one for that is so true we just did um one school we did we collected just the waste through the week, mm-hmm. um, and then we did a full separation. Ooh. We got all, the, all the primary school kids, we had to separate all these wastes, like all the yogurt tub containers, all of those plastic sippy yogurt ones, the ones where you crack the lid off and, you know, siphon it down really quickly. And then we did things, simple things like let's stack up, we've got to stack up all the yogurt cups, and then we want the kids to stand next to them to, you know, like to retain, oh, my goodness, like, Mm-hmm. We imagine this was only one week of yogurt cups and this school didn't even have recycling. So we were showing how much of recyclable products were going to landfill and the accountability this primary school had. And stacking all the yogurt cups up a little bit like trying to do Lego and having to stand <laughs> next to the pile of them was how we retained them on that level that anchors to them, which is so right, Laura, is, oh, yeah, I remember that. Like we were being silly and we were stacking all those yogurt tubs and we were standing in front of them getting photos about how high this would be if it was one year's worth. And you have to do that for sure. And while they're doing it, they'd be like, oh, that was mine. That was my strawberry yogurt. And that was your peach yogurt, right? Mm-hmm. Did you wash them yep. though? Like if, if you collected it for a week, were they washing all their trash? Because I think by Friday, a no. yogurt cup from Monday would be yucky. No, we didn't. No, we just kept it. And everyone was covered in gloves and stuff. And we, as senior senior people, we did the first day, we did the separation with the kids. And then the end of the week for the big one, it was done by, you know, qualified people to do it because of health safety regulations. It was actually very impacting for the operational management staff at the school. They were actually probably more mortified mm-hmm. on the amount of waste and accountability that school had been doing on letting those type of waste streams, which is generally most waste, about 40% of it can be recycled. We are progressing now because of different technologies that can take different types of waste streams now and actually convert them. We're moving up to about 55, maybe 60 in some instances of um, waste that could be put across into a recyclable form. But it was the management that looked at that and went, wow. And then when that's when we got that stats and data and went, oh, this is equivalent to this much ton per year. This is how much ton of stuff that you're putting in landfill. So mm-hmm. imagine what all the other schools in Australia would be doing. So, yeah, that's, that's where it starts to pinch you in the side sometimes when you get those stats and data. Absolutely. One of my favorite memes is, it's only one straw, said 7 billion people. <laughs> <laughs> 
because you don't think it's you're making an impact and then you really have to multiply yourself by everybody else on the planet. And that's really hard to comprehend, especially when you're getting into these astronomical numbers of how many straws are being used or yogurt cups, right? So I love that idea that you, you get them out and do their little audit because that's something people recommend when you're trying to transition to a zero waste lifestyle is sort through your trash, see, see what it is and see what you can cut out and see what, see what the issues are, right? Because if you don't, if you don't know what it is, how can you fix it, I guess? Are there, are there ways that you live zero waste or, or low waste in your own life or your office? Like I, I imagine you're, you're yeah. very low, low carbon output, but uh, what about zero waste? Yes, for sure. We have a few rules in our office um, as well as home. But in regards to office at Glowing Green Australia, we, um, you cannot definitely go, cannot go get a hot beverage or a beverage of any sort unless you have a recyclable cup, a reusable cup, I should say. So whether that's a hot coffee beverage drink or a smoothie or a juice, you don't you dare walk back in the office with any packaging. <laughs> um, I wish every office had that. Can you imagine? It would be so perfect. There's no excuse. There's everything yeah. there in the kitchen to grab and take it and to do it. And then, yeah, you know, like on your way to work, like, sorry, you'll have to wait and come to work and then go get your drink because you can grab the cup. So we try to, uh, we definitely, we definitely instill that one. That's the rule in our office. There's um, all the right products there if you want to go get food or whatever. And if my staff are like, well, I just want to go get a coffee and something to eat because I didn't bring lunch. Well, I'm like, well, you can take your laptop and we advocate for that mindset lifestyle if you're having getting a little bit flat in the office and you want to go do that, double up, sit down and use the plate and crockery at the cafe to have that snack or eat that toasted focaccia instead of getting it chucked in a paper bag and bringing it back to the office. Yes. Sit down and do that because it's a double effect. It's switching you out, giving you time out in a different place. Amazing. Um, I love it. Rethink 101 of sustainability, how you get the best productivity out of staff is giving them that space. You sound like a dream boss. Like I think me and a lot of listeners would would love to work for you. No, like that would be amazing to me because I've worked in in office settings and it's so nice to go out, right? Places will give you this 30 minute time slot and you really don't have time to barely sit down anywhere by the time you travel or whatever. So then that's when all that takeout stuff happens, right? If we just had a little bit more time to sit down, even if you took an hour for lunch, you might get way more work done afterwards or like you said take your laptop and and do it there i love working in coffee shops or on the train or or anywhere but some people don't so it just is all it's good you have the choice right that's amazing to hear yeah yeah very much advocate for that because i know if i model i have to model the behavior to myself or i'll be like i'm just going to go down my our office is very close to the beach here um on the gold coast in australia some of the best surfing in the world and we I very much advocate as a part of our science philosophy that when I have new interns that come as well or staff, I let them know that I am all down for you to say, hey, I want everyone to be the best version of the human that they need to be, which in turn is that's just a good duty of care we should have as every human to human. But also that in turn was going to help us build the right culture to be able to deliver on and do the things that we need to do as a company and for me to get the best out of my staff to think optimistically, to think solution orientated, to be able to think outside the box, they need to have that refresh reset all the time. So definitely advocate as the last thing in terms that have just come through. If you need time, I'm going to feel confidence in you that you are doing the right thing by us. You can go away and you need to go work down, sit down at the deck right alongside the beach and want to work for an hour to reset, reset your mind, work on something, switch yourself out. If that's going to help you be the better version of a human that you need to be, you come back to the office and your work productivity has gone up another 10 or 20%. Um, I'm all down and I advocate for that. Absolutely. Because I think when you take away that pressure of that boss thing, that you need to be over the shoulder of everyone and doing it, and you change that ownership, and I put the responsibility on them, so I make them feel accountable, that I don't I don't push it the other way. I, I instill an accountability on well, I want you to do the right thing by me as, a, as you know, your your leader who looks after you and, and pays for you. I want you to feel that to me, not me having to push that pressure on you. And then, yeah, so that I know we've taken away a little bit around living sustainably, but that is a very big part of sustainability, as we all know. And then also just simple things, other things that we do, we make sure that we 
are doing our recycling as best possible as we can here. At work, we have amazing big, great glass windows in our office, so we can open and let fresh air in. We don't need to put the lights on a lot, so that's also helpful. And a really simple one that I thought of the other day was we reuse the notepads from my kids' school books. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when kids, because some kids still using notepads at school, they're not all transitioned to digital laptops. Mm-hmm. But those school workbooks, I reckon a third of every school book my kids have had is not being used. Mm-hmm. So when you add that up per year with how many times kids are, how many years kids are at school, that's a lot of paper in those notebooks that has not been used. And a lot of people obviously just throw those books in the trash, whether they're wire bound or they don't know how to break the book apart to separate it and what can go into waste. But I take those books and we use them up, like reverse them around and just go from backwards to front. And there's a lot of paper that we use. I do not need to go buy notepads because there's so much paper in the back of my kids' school book mm-hmm. or the times when we do need to sit down and map out stuff on paper or I need to take notes um, and I'm not typing when I'm on a meeting at a phone. And then my own personal stuff is around ensuring that we cook and only cook to the amount that's needed. We mitigate food waste because that is some of the highest Good. Um, landfill gases that go into that for people who don't compost mm-hmm. and recycle. Yeah. Um, so that is around duty of care to food and the pressure on the food security as well that it's all well and good that you compost do stuff if you do have a lot of excess food waste, but how could you actually stop the need to even doing a lot of composting by not taking and consuming and eating more food than needed or cooking more food than needed? It's all good if you're using it for leftovers the next day, but as we know, sometimes we buy extra bottles and sauces and stuff, and then six months later people are like, oh, all these sauces and condiments have all gone off, mm-hmm. you know? Like, what if you actually only bought a small one or you only bought what you needed? So that, that's really important. Um, obviously, I use lower carbon fuels all the time and I advocate for that. And, yeah, just a general things like yourself. You know, I've seen a great photo of you on your bike, Laura. Can I just change a couple of behaviours? Do we really need to drive? Could we double up? Could we walk? Could we catch a bus? Mm-hmm. Simple things like that. So if you're by the ocean, it's probably not super hot, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or is no. it? No. When I was in Australia, it was very hot. It was like plus 41 or something all the time. And it was it was crazy. So everybody would just go to the mall and walk around in the air conditioning. Like the malls were jam-packed and like you would never see anyone outside. Yes, it does get very hot. I live by the ocean, but we do get very hot. We have different regions in Australia. We have a very big geographical climatic um, areas that compare very differently. Mm-hmm. But um we do have a dependency a lot more so in summer to be using air conditioning comparative in winter time on the Gold Coast of Australia to need to have reverse air cycle heating done. So, but we do have the ability to have a lot of sea breezes that are here in our office, which is great. But it is, we are very hot. Australia is a very hot country. Mm-hmm. And um, especially where we are on the Gold Coast, it does get very warm. We do get to the crack of 40s, 38, have humidity a lot of high humidity, and then a lot of areas have very, very dry regions. So we are very dependent on cooling in mm-hmm. our country, Yeah, probably comparative to you with the heating the heating aspect, which you would very, be very dependent on needing to have heating. Yeah, we are. Yeah, so I can, I can see that we'd be using a lot of fossil fuels for that. But in Ontario, the province that I live, you can see our electricity grid spikes in the summer months. We have, we have, July and August, which are, they, that's when it gets up to like plus 30, plus 31. And that's when we use the most energy. So we actually use a lot less to heat our homes in the winter when it's minus 30, which blew my mind when I saw those charts. Wow. I was like, why is this? Because it's it's crazy. Like, do we really need to be this cold? But in a lot of places in Ontario, it's like swampy almost, like it's very wet and damp. And so a lot of people have issues with mold and basements get really wet and like gross if you if you aren't regulating the temperature. So it's tricky. But then also, like I, I've worked in buildings where the girls have to wear sweaters <laughs> in the summer. It's like plus plus 30 outside and then everybody's got like wool sweaters on inside because 
the climate has just kept so cold and there's like no windows to open. It's crazy. So I, I really like that you say you have windows to open and that you actually do that because a lot of people don't. They don't use things like opening their windows or using curtains. Curtains are a big, a big thing. Like if you close them when it's hot, open them when it's not, then it, it makes a big difference, right? So there's all these little things that we can do. So it sounds like you have such a cool office to work in. That's that's really amazing. <laughs> it is indeed. Um, yeah, you can see a lot of, actually you can catch a lot of those videos and stuff that I have conversations with my interns and, and stuff in our office. There's a lot of videos on my, on my personal LinkedIn um, and our, some of our company LinkedIn. Are those but, on yeah, your website? Is, they are on Glowing Green. my personal Larissa Road. LinkedIn and also on Glowing Green Australia's LinkedIn, which is an open page anyone can be on. Okay. And then on our normal social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook. But we do have a lot of feedback and I because of the culture we've created a lot with our interns and I guess at the end of the day that's my personal methodology on life which filters into Glowing Green Australia and and my outlook and approach on how we do things is that a lot of interns are quite keen and eager to be a part of our internship program um, because of the culture and the ethics of, of what we have and it, it gives them a really good refreshed perspective and I had an interview just with my last intern who left last Friday and we did a quick walk to the beach while we talked about what it has meant for her to do her internship and we did a video and it you know after we'd done that she just said how much she had really got pre-programmed a little bit on what that mentality was to have a boss and she said you're going to make it really hard now because <laughs> you've shown me so much of how it is to have a leader that goes beyond a different you know condition of programming I probably what we've had in culture over the years of what the boss is and she said now it's going to be really hard because I've got a benchmark and I <laughs> how do I go better than that benchmark Thank you so much, Larissa, for coming on the show. It was very enlightening. I learned a lot about biofuels that I didn't know and about consulting too. And it would be really nice if there were more environmental consultants working with companies. And then even when companies get their own sustainability coordinator, I think that that would be really, really helpful as well because businesses are are creating a lot of trash and pollution and, and they can they can solve it, I think. Brilliant. And thank you so much for giving me the time to be able to chat a little bit about what's happening here in Down Under Australia. And I'm happy to strike up any other further conversations in due time as well. So thank you again, Laura. Really appreciate it. That was Larissa Rose, Director and Senior Environmental Consultant at Glowing Green Australia. If you like our show and want to help save the world from all this trash we're consuming, please consider donating to the Zero Waste Countdown. You can become a patron on Podbean, you can find me on Patreon, or you can donate right on the website, zerowastecountdown.com. And if you're interested in seeing a photo of our guests, you can check us out on Instagram, that's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you want to email me, it's laura at zerowastecountdown.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks to all our listeners in America, Canada, Australia, Germany, the UK, and wherever else you may be tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. (laughs) 